So please have John 17 open in front of you. We're not going to look at all of it this morning. We're just going to look at the first few sentences which say, After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is the prayer of Jesus, and we are privileged this morning to have an insight into the heart and mind of Jesus. And as I was interested as Steve prayed, he, he used an expression pretty much like that, an insight into the heart of Jesus. I mention this because um, it's part of Christian speak nowadays to talk about God's heart and to say, you know, we, we know what God's heart is on something. And I want to say that's quite a bold statement, to say we know God's heart. Um, we only know God's heart if he shows us what's in his heart. We can't guess what's in his heart. It's a bit presumptuous to do that. Uh, but here in this prayer, we do have an insight into the heart and mind of Jesus. And he is deliberately letting us get this insight because the prayer is there, presumably spoken out loud, and recorded for us. So here is the heart of Jesus. And we should be humble to listen to what he says. This is what my heart is. Don't you go guessing what my heart is. I'm going to tell you what my heart is. It's a, a, so we have a privileged insight into the heart and mind of Jesus. And it is a prayer for us. But I, I'm slightly hesitant, so I put those dots, because it's a we only get mentioned right at the end. So, interestingly, Jesus' heart and mind, um, I don't say we're an afterthought, but he doesn't zoom straight in. Uh, Heavenly Father, I want to pray for those people at Calvary because for some, he, he, he's got... His heart and mind actually doesn't zoom in on us. There's other things on his heart and mind that we'll look, about, look at. So, from which I... I point out that Jesus doesn't always feel or think about things the way we feel or think. I think we need a certain amount of humility on this and a certain amount of teachability. Jesus is showing us his heart and mind and we are not at the centre of it. Um, interesting, isn't it? He doesn't put us at the centre of everything, although that's what we tend to do. We tend to think we're the centre of everything, don't we? Each of us individually thinks that the world revolves around us. Children particularly think that, don't they? But we're a bit childish in that sense. We think the world revolves around us, but Jesus doesn't think the world revolves around us. Um, his prayer is actually God-centred and, if you like, Christ-centred. So here's, here's a thought. 
Uh, the world doesn't revolve around us. Jesus doesn't see it that way. Um, and perhaps we need to remember that. Uh, perhaps we need to readjust our thinking if we're to be in tune with this prayer. Now, uh, what's going on in the, the prayer? Uh, there are many, many connections between the Father and the Son. So Jesus, in his heart and mind, is thinking, um, first and foremost, about his relationship with his Heavenly Father. Uh, so, the, so if you like, we're, we're treading on holy ground. We're allowed to come in and hear and overhear what Jesus is thinking and feeling. And we're entering into his world of things. And in his world of things, his relationship with his heavenly Father sort of seems to overshadow everything. That's what it's all about. The Son and the Father. Perhaps we'll see a bit more of that in a moment. I mean, for example, verse 6. Uh, connection. I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me. They have obeyed your word. Here's Jesus, and his, his vision is filled with his relationship to his heavenly Father. And he's saying, uh, I revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours, but you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So very interesting, isn't it? This is the world in which Jesus is thinking and living and uh, speaking. And, and I reflect that we're talking about wonderful relationships. We're talking about something more real than climate change, I dare say that. More fundamental than particle physics. Uh, we're talking about what the world, our created world, is founded upon. Something that was there before our created world existed. Which is the relationship between the Father and the Son uh, in the presence of the Spirit. The prayer is, as we enter into this prayer, we enter into a world that's full of these relationships which are so wonderful. You might not have been expecting that. And as I was preparing, I was thinking, well, where's the application of this? What does it say to us? And in a, in a way, we have to stop because Jesus has got other things on his mind other than us. Um, in, in, I mean, not, he doesn't exclude us, but Jesus isn't sort of looking at us and saying, I've got something for you. He's, he's looking, first of all, to his heavenly Father and conversing with him. And we're allowed to overhear that. And then as I pointed out earlier that this prayer is full of giving as many givings and uh, when I was reading it through I went through and I put a little squiggle with my red pen every time the word giving was used I don't know how many I've got but it's something like a dozen of them lots and lots of giving and I don't think we can sorry uh, so verse 2 you gave him authority that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. There's three givings in one verse there. Uh, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Lots about giving. And without trying to track it down any further, well, here, there's the example, the father 
gives to the Son and the Son gives to people, for example. Let's just ponder that. What is at the, what is at the bottom of our created universe? What is the uncreated scene behind, uh, from which creation comes? Relationships of giving. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the truth behind our universe is a trinity God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, who is forever giving and giving and giving. Isn't that remarkable? It puts a little light on what being like God is, if you see what I mean. Uh, givingness is a wonderful thing. I suppose it's saying that if we are to be like God, then we are not to be sort of taking people, but giving people. That's a sort of oblique reflection, isn't it? You think, yeah, that, that's what God is like. He's always giving. So there were a couple of um, observations just sort of on the surface of it. So as we re enter reverently into the world of Jesus' prayer, let's notice the, there are some sections to it. So verses 1 to 5 is Jesus praying about, well I think what he's praying about is his glory. And that crops up. That's Jesus and his Father and there is this prayer about the glory, the honour that they give to one another. Uh, and I, I point out again that a father-son relationship is about the son honouring the father. And we get, a, we get a spillover of that into human relationships, don't we? What, uh, let me just think, um, what's the commandment to do with children and parents? Yeah, New Testament says obey your parents. Ten Commandments says honour your father and mother. It's interesting, isn't it? That idea of honouring, uh, of children honouring their parents isn't a, just a cultural thing. It's actually an eternal thing. That it's, it has always been so. That the son seeks to glorify or to honour, bring honour to the father. Chap uh, so this, moving on to the second section just so we can get our bearings a little bit verses 6 to 19 long section there uh, Jesus is praying for some people verse 9 who is he not praying for verse 9 who is he not praying for the world he is not praying for the world and I, in some places Jesus prays more widely now remember when he was crucified he says Father forgive them for they know not what they do he wasn't praying for his disciples then he was praying for his executioners but in this particular prayer he says I'm not praying for the world isn't that interesting because we would have thought God's heart is for the world we thought if we're thinking about God's heart he'd be thinking about everybody but 
and, and, and I'm sure in a sense there is, a, there is truth in that and a lot of truth in it but it's very interesting that when Jesus says I'm going to allow you to overhear whom I'm praying for he's, he's quite specific there is a, pr a prayer I'm praying not for everybody but for these people in particular I think in a way we find that rather shocking but it's also very encouraging and who uh, let's just see not for the uh, wait a minute, not for the world where are we lost my place verse 9 I'm praying not for the world but for those you have given me so there are some who have been given by the father to the son and he's praying for those so I'm going to write up here on the screen uh, the given ones and I put a reference to verse 12 which says while I was with them I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled any ideas who this he's referring to the one doomed to destruction this Judas isn't it he's talking about his disciples and again we're perhaps a little bit taken aback by that because we were looking forward to that whole section being about us but it isn't about us it's about the first generation disciples uh, his tw I don't know whether Jesus was just thinking of 12 or 11 in fact or whether he's talking about a wider group or um, you know there were 120 weren't there in their upper room or whether he's talking even wider than that but he's not talking about us <laughs> oh be a bit miffed about that but no Jesus says no I'm, I'm not praying for the world but I'm praying for this particular very important foundational group of the first generation Christians I'm praying for them so we just notice that that's who he's praying for in that section and then in verse 20 he says my prayer is not for them alone I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that's us finally finally we're in there um, it's a bit like when there's a photograph taken of something and you're in there and you think where, where am I where am I where am I oh there I am right at the back well here we are uh, Jesus says I'm not only praying for this uh, group of first-generation Christians this very important foundational group of first-generation Christians but for the subsequent generations and um, these are the people who will believe through the word that the first generation got and passed on and if you wanted uh, a long word for it you would say it is the uh, these people are sort of like the apostolic group they're the sent group they're the commissioned group and the message that is passed on is the apostolic message uh, the gospel in other words these are the people who got the gospel and speak the gospel and then everybody else who listens to that and hears it that's us includes us uh, Jesus says I'm going to pray for them as well it's interesting isn't it um, he doesn't zoom straight to us but he first of all prays for his own glory then he prays for his disciples or apostles and finally he prays for the next generation believers so that's the way the prayer goes that's Jesus's heart in this matter so did that was that clear 
Mark usually says it's clear, but Mark isn't here, so. So we're going to look as best we can and as God helps us and meditate on the first five verses for the next little while. And it's, all, it's in my nature to try and make things simple and neat. And I realise that that's not always a helpful approach because things aren't always simple and neat. But that's my way I tend to see things. And I think it would be a true statement to say that in these first five verses there is one request there is one request which is repeated and it's repeated with different connections and the request is glorify your son verse 1 glorify your son father glorify your son verse 5 now, Father, glorify me. That's the request of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that interesting that Jesus can say, my first concern is that I should be glorified. If we were to say that, we would be committing blasphemy because we would be making ourselves into the centre of the universe. But Jesus can say that quite rightly. Father, this is my primary concern. This is the first thing I want to mention. That I should be glorified. And let's look at the connections that he says it. I want you to notice very much that this is a time-critical request. Now, I hadn't noticed this until I looked at it more carefully. But it is definitely a time-critical request. Please notice how he begins. Father, the time has come. He didn't pray this prayer all the way through. He prays this prayer at this particular moment. And the particular moment is uh, that they've had the Last Supper, that Jesus is soon to be arrested, then he will go to trial, and he will go to the cross. And this is what he has in mind. He's saying, all the, there have been some months and years of preparation. Do you remember that at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, uh, and his mother said to him, they have no more wine, or they have no wine. And Jesus said, why, you, oh, why do you trouble me? My hour has not yet come. And he said things like that all the way through. But at this time critical point, he says, the hour has come. And I'm sure that Jesus is referring to what will take place in mere hours from now where he goes to the cross and he says, right, this is the time to pray this prayer. It is time critical. He refers to the past. Uh, verse 2 is a past tense. You gave him authority. Uh, those you have given him. Uh, verse 4 is a past tense. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do completing um, but the glorify is the time critical well no the, there is a, a present aspect and that's what he's saying this is what I is needed now please notice there is the word now verse 5 and now glorify me in your presence now um, 
we use the word now in English to just mean I can't think of anything else to say at this particular moment. So Yorkshire people, when they can't think of anything to say, they say, now then, now then, young Chris, get called young Chris very often either. Uh, it, it's just, a, it doesn't mean anything, just, just a word to fill in a gap. And in fact, the translators have done this in verse 3. They put now, this is eternal life. Uh, and I have looked, and to the best of my recollection, that word now is just the word and. And the translators have put now in as if, because they can't think of anything else to put in. So ignore that one, but don't ignore the one in verse 5. Now. This is important now. The hour has come now. Right. The hour has come. Not the now in verse 3, but the now in verse 5. Now glorify me. And the now that he's thinking of is the time and the hour of his death on the cross. Just think of that. What's on Jesus' heart and mind as he stands before his Father? He thinks about the timetable which is leading to the cross and he says now, isn't the, now there needs to be a prayer prayed. Now something is needed to ask of the Heavenly Father. So let's look at these uh, connections. And I've, I've uh, I, for better or worse, I've put them as little, uh, little pictures. Uh, sometimes it helps me to put little pictures uh, and I don't know whether it helps you or not but uh, verse 1 the time has come something to do with the son and something to do with the father so I put two arrows on those diagrams something the son does to the father and something the father does to the son anybody like to suggest what I had in mind for those two arrows something that the father does to the son something the son does to the father from that verse glorify yes glorify your son so he's asking the father to glorify the son so that your son may glorify you I suppose it's, it's showing that Jesus even the Lord Jesus isn't asking in a self-centered way to be glorified but so that this glory will be reflect on his father if you glorify me then you will be glorified and the, the Lord Jesus cares about the glory of God that's his first prayer isn't it that the father may be glorified that the son may bring honor to his father and what's it connected with well it is connected in in a, um, a way that's worth looking at Four, verse 2, 4. There are some things that have been given. Not that easy to draw a picture. I don't know whether the picture's any help at all. Um, you gave him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. I think Jesus is talking about two different groups of people. He says, so I've done here the people in blue, so that's all people. 
and I've done people in red which are a smaller group of people and I think that what Jesus is saying is you heavenly father have given me authority over all people every man and woman and boy and girl I have authority over all of them and the purpose of that authority is that that smaller group whom you have given me that I will give eternal life to them this is sort of quite a network of, of things going on isn't there what has the father given the son he's given him authority the father has given him authority over everybody and what else has the father given he's given this group of people that, it, that Jesus has in his mind he's given him these people and now the son has sufficient authority to give to these people eternal life that's the situation that Jesus envisages he's saying that's the way it is heavenly father you've given me to be lord of all and I use that supreme authority to give to this group of people I'm going to give them eternal life and they're people that you have already given to me so I'm going to give these people eternal life it's rather breathtaking isn't it it's saying that there is a plan and an arrangement and uh, a deep counsel between the Father and the Son regarding people gaining eternal life. And I think perhaps we could look at it this way, that if, if you have eternal life, it gives you cause to stop and think a moment that you were the subject of the father's prearrangement with the son which goes back goodness knows how long before the world was made that the father had you in mind and in some arrangement that you never knew anything about gave you to the son and the son in time and space at a certain point in your personal history gave you eternal life it's almost mind-blowing isn't it but that's that's what to the Lord Jesus this is I mean he knows all about these things but to us this become very strange I give them eternal life and Jesus also connects this with what eternal life is this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent so I'll try to put that into a little picture uh, again we're talking about the gift of eternal life and we're saying what is it Jesus says this is eternal life to know for them Heavenly Father to know you and to know Jesus Christ whom you have sent to know the Father and the Son and to know in some real sense he doesn't explain what the real sense of it is but I, I'm thinking that this is some sort of genuine relationship whereby if you or I are in this group we can call out to God and say Heavenly Father and the Father doesn't put us in his spam folder do you know what a spam folder is and you get you get emails from all sorts of people 
offering you all sorts of things, many of which you really would rather you didn't know even existed. But they are, and and the, from all these requests, you put them in your spam folder or your email, puts them automatically. Don't want to know anything about that, don't want to know that, really don't want to know that, goes in the rubbish. God, get lots of, God gets lots of requests from all over the place, I expect. But when it's from his people whom he knows and who knows him, he doesn't put them in the spam folder. He puts them in his inbox. And he deals with them one by one and he reads them all the way through from the top to the bottom and he gives a proper answer to each one. That's a... Jesus didn't say that, did he? He didn't use an email as an example. But I, I'm, I'm just thinking this is the sort of thing he's talking about. That we should not be strangers to God. We should not be um, rejected by God, but we should know God. This is what it is to have eternal life, that you should know the Father and to know the Son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And I think if we ponder that, it's, it shows us the privilege for which we're to give thanks. It shows us that we're Christian people, we're immensely privileged. We're immensely privileged. And if you're not a Christian, in a sense, you're an outsider to this, aren't you? Jesus has said, I'm not praying for this for everybody. I'm not, this isn't to do with everybody. This is to do with this group of people that belong to me. Makes you think, doesn't it? Am I one of those, one of that group? Could I become one of that group? Would I like to be one of that group? What would it take to become one of that group? What would it involve? And from these verses here, uh, what it says is it would involve Jesus deciding to do that. I give them eternal life. So we could say more about that, but here's uh, the, the, the point that it comes to. Uh, if he doesn't give it, you don't get it. You don't have it by natural birth. You don't, you don't decide yourself, I'm having eternal life and just sign up for it. It's in the gift of Jesus. It means that you need to ask Jesus uh, very really and say to him, Lord, I, I'm, I'm, I'm overhearing this. I want this eternal life and I understand that if you don't give it to me, I don't have it. Please will you give this to me? Please explain to me what, how the gift operates, how, how, how I might have this. Because I really need this. I don't want to be messing about on the uh, paddling about in Christian things, on the edge. I want to be in there. How can I be in there? Apparently, Lord, you give it. Will you give it to me? I want to know about this. Let's move on. <clears throat> this is eternal life that you that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And there's another connection here which works something like this. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Let's just look at that as a, in the form of a picture. So there's the Father, and uh, so here is the things on E something, 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 on 
earth. So please notice that. This is not to do with an, um, how things have always been from eternity. It's how, what the, the particular things that Jesus did on earth. And I presume it's coming to earth, it's doing his teaching ministry and his uh, sign ministry, and in particular his cross. Because Jesus says, I have completed the work. Same word as finished, so I, I put the word finish here. Finish. I've finished the work. And he's, he's thinking ahead, isn't he? He's thinking of what will happen when he goes to the cross. But this is, these are the things on earth. This is the work that he's um, done on earth. And the Father gave him this work to do, and there's one bit of the picture left to fill in. What does Jesus say about his finishing this work, how it affects the Father? What does the verse say? How does this affect the Father? Glory. glory. Yes, I have brought you glory. I've, if you like, I've glorified you on earth. So the, Jesus is saying, I've, you gave me work to do on earth, and I've finished that work, and I've brought you glory by doing it. And then that request is repeated and now father please notice the now now at this point at the point of the cross it seems to me glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began let me just point out a thing about the uh, excuse me about the translation here the word in your presence uh, I'm not quite sure that in your presence is right the word that's translated in can mean with or from and, the re and I, I, I thought I understood this verse until I came to think about it a little bit because notice the now he's not saying glorify me in the future when I go back to your presence he's saying glorify me now and I think it would make more sense and some of the translations say this actually glorify me with your presence or glorify me from your presence now in this particular now when I go to the cross and glorify me with the glory I had with you. So I put the Father and the Son together as things were before the coming of Jesus. And I think he's saying, and I sort of tremble to say it, he's saying, take that glory and put it, whoops, on me now when I go to the cross. May that cross which looks like a place of humiliation and failure and horror and gruesomeness may that cross and all that goes with it 
but this is what's happening now, may that cross be the place where the glory of God rests. May that cross be the place where God is glorified as he was in the beginning of things, where the Son is glorified as he was when he was with the glory um, way back. May this cross, now Father, the hour has come, may this event be glorious. See, that's just an amazing thought, isn't it? Glorify me with your, with your own personal glory on that cross. What a thought that is. And yet for the Christian, uh, it's not a completely new thought, is it? What is the most glorious thing for us? There is a song which says, My glory all the cross. The thing that was most horrible for Jesus is most wonderful for us. Where would we be if Jesus hadn't died on the cross for us? Is that not the most glorious thing? Is that not the most wonderful thing? Is that the, not, not the most um, deep and exquisite revelation of who God is when his son dies on the cross. Isn't it so? God shows his glory in creation. We praise God for it. God shows his glory in sustaining us in providence and we praise God for it. But when he shows his glory in the cross, we think, wow, what a God he is. Who is a God like this? A God of grace, a God of sacrifice, a God of, well, who loves sinners like us. I think that prayer was answered when Jesus said, when I go to the cross, glorify me. Now glorify me. The hour has come. Glorify, Father, glorify your Son that your Son may bring glory to you. I think that happened. So, we finish our meditation I think by admiring the relationship between the father and the son isn't it all amazing we're amazed at the glory that Jesus aspired to regarding the cross that's how he saw the cross that was what it was in his heart about the cross and I think perhaps in a, in a, in a little bit of a way our hearts say amen to that that is a glorious place and we humble ourselves before him at this gift of what it is to know God and if we don't have that we humble ourselves asking him for that gift what it is to know God to know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent let's sing together <laughs>